0: Yeah, so I like the idea of, like, partial off the grid.
1: Yeah, like Being a good in-between. Being, like, in between. off the grid. Yeah.
0: Like, like have you, have could be a, you
1: could be a homesteader.
0: Right. Like, have some chickens and some apple trees. And a cow. And whatever you can grow in South Dakota. And I haven't learned that yet. I can, I'm sure I can Google it. Yeah,
1: I think that would be the tough part, because then you have to get really committed to canning all of your food. Yeah. Which would be not super fun to me. You're listening to Lead em To Life, where it's our prerogative to explore what it means to be authentically human and fully alive. We have far more questions than answers, but believe that extraordinary answers can be found in the ordinariness of a journey. I'm your host, Emily Leedham. Hello, friends, and welcome to this episode of Lead em To Life. Happy Lent. I pray that your first week was absolutely delightful. Shane Van Deest, welcome to this podcast.
0: Emily, it is a joy to be here. You've been on my list for a while. Well, it's ironic, right? So you have had, I believe, close to 50% of the little men's group I'm a part of, which includes, of course, the infamous Matt Liedem. Of course. Uh, And you've also had my better half on your podcast, my wife. She's the best. Um, And so, you know, we're going to, I'm sure, do a little introduction, but... You know, if you really want to know who Shane is, just listen to my wife's episode (laughs) and you can learn all about my marital intimacy, which was the topic of that podcast. Can
1: I tell you something? So last week, two weeks ago, whenever it was, I was at uh, the Seek conference that they held locally and I had a young woman come up to me that was like, uh, your episodes on sexuality and on natural family planning have absolutely changed my life. And now my husband and I are my fiance and I, she's engaged um, are embracing natural family planning because yeah. of all these things. And I was like, man, okay. I, I was so grateful because there's a vulnerability that's required. If somebody's going to come on a podcast and sit in front of a microphone and <laughs> share some of that, and the fact that that vulnerability is not wasted and that it's actually you know, making an impact on people. is just so encouraging.
0: Absolutely. Well, and you know, my wife is, is certainly in our marriage, the introverted one. Yeah. Um, we joke like she brings me to, you know, dinner parties because I can talk a little bit about a lot of things, right. <laughs> which is, which is ironic that you asked me to be on this podcast. Cause I feel like your <laughs> podcast is, you've done an amazing job of finding people who have these little specific niches, things that they are incredibly passionate are incredibly talented at and my wife is one of those right she is very very good and very very focused in her love and her passion for a couple things like yep. helping new couples yep. navigate marital intimacy yep. and helping you know soon to be married couples or couples that have been married for a long time navigate that reality of natural yeah. family planning. yeah, And I'm sort of the opposite. I know and love a little bit about a lot of things. A lot of things. And so I don't know what my niche is, so we'll <laughs> see where this conversation goes. But uh, but yeah, my wife really enjoyed that, and I'm glad that it's borne some fruit.
1: Yeah. Well, I like I said, I've wanted to have you on for a while, but actually um, Matt, uh, shortly after you joined their men's group, came home and was like, you need to have Shane on the podcast. He's just – He has so much insight. He just has a real respect of you um, and has been really stirred by different things that you've shared about the faith and about your own journey and that kind of thing. So um, I I want kind of to root this conversation a little bit in liturgy and ritual, especially as we enter more deeply into this season of Lent. Um, That's all about the smells and the textures of the, you know, all of these things that we kind of have. But first of all, I actually don't know the answer to this question. How did you go from a college football coach to working for the church?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I, uh, you know, I, after college, I did a year of graduate school um, and I was doing biomedical science. So I, I was a biomath background guy in my undergrad days. Um, but I, I wasn't quite done with, with with football, at least in my heart. Uh, and so I started looking... did you play? I did. I played, okay. I played football for a small school back in, in Montana, where I'm from Carroll College. Um, so one won a couple, you know, small school... N- national championships there and um had, had a great experience with that uh and, and still really loved loved the game and and loved the intellectual side of it uh and wanted to get into coaching or at least thought I did
1: you loved the intellectual side of the game
0: I did and that's what I' never heard someone say that about football this is what always surprises people about football um you know i I like to joke and it's only a half-hearted joke because it's half true that my my playbook for football, uh, was bigger than my textbook for organic chemistry. Um, so the, the intellectual component, the, the memorization and the nuances of college football, maybe not so much at the high school level, but, but college and then certainly professional, which I was never going to, going to come close to touching. Um, is incredible and, and more than people realize. I try to explain it to to people when we're watching a game on TV, um, how many different nuances. All the
1: intricacies of it.
0: The length of a, of a play call at the college level is, you know, two or three sentences long. Um, so I loved that side. I love the, as we like to say, the X's and O's.
1: Okay. Um,
0: And so, yeah, found a job coaching. Uh, had never been to Vermillion, South Dakota, but uh, the way coaching works, it's sort of you need to know a person and, you need to have your timing and your luck kind of all line up. Yeah. Um, and so was hired uh, by Joe Glenn and his staff um, at the University of South Dakota, in Vermillion, South Dakota, and uh, spent a couple of years there coaching football, coached defensive backs for the U. Coyotes. And <laughs> it was during my time uh, as a coach that I got really um, – I, I was already pretty into my faith at that time. My conversion or reversion, however you want to phrase it, happened sort of towards the end of my college years. Uh, And I I started helping out with their focus team. So focus being the fellowship of Catholic university students Uh, and their focus team had this real desire to, to do outreach to the athletes on campus in Vermilion. And, but it was an area that they had been unable to crack, so to speak. Um, Athletes tend to have a little bit different schedule, tend to have a little different social routine, tend to be at different physical places on the campus. Mm -hmm. And so it's a unique type of outreach. And suddenly they had a, uh, a football coach, who was was also coming to daily mass. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I was sort of there in and um, yeah, I I started leading Bible studies and doing discipleship and doing all of the, the focus type ministry things um, with young men on that campus who were, who were athletes. Uh, And I realized pretty quickly that my favorite part of my week uh, was leading that Bible study with those guys. And it wasn't. And my second favorite part of the week was game day. Uh, and so after two years, um, I made the decision to, to join focus full time. And I said, you know, if this is the best part of my week, this, this one hour or one hour and a half Bible study with these men, uh, and breaking open the scriptures with them and sharing life with them, uh, why wouldn't I do this full time? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I joined focus and, uh, haven't been back to coaching, uh, since I guess, um, at least at, at the college level. And I miss it a lot of times, but, um, that's what led me to. Working in the church now for the last uh, close to a decade.
1: Fascinating. Yeah, I was just going to ask, do you feel like you approached or approach now the different people that you're walking with, the different people that you are teaching and and encouraging in their own journey? Do you kind of approach it like a coach?
0: I think coaching is something that's in your blood. And okay. my dad was a coach, and that's sort of the way I grew up. I grew up around coaches, and um, I, I don't think we can overestimate the importance of coaches. And That, that could be a whole different podcast probably. Um, I I was listening to, uh, one of those research studies about people leaving the church, um, and loneliness and, uh, in, in this generation of millennials and generation Z. And one of the amazing statistics was that, um, you know, you only really need as a young person, about four people, four adults in your life Hmm. to be invested in you, to have really great success in all of those different attributes. So, you know, high school graduation, um, and, you know, finding a spouse and ordering your, your life in a way that's sustainable, um, and so you think about like, where do those four people come from yeah. for most kids? And yeah. hopefully, one or two are parents. Um, and one maybe is a teacher or another mentor or a friend of the family. But for how many people is that person a coach? A coach. Um And so I do think I approach things like a coach and. I can probably be uh good at good at times and and probably I'm I'm a little too blunt with people at times too but yeah coaching is definitely something that's in your blood.
1: I appreciate your bluntness. I actually think it works for you. Good. Okay, so then you uh also went on for some further studies. What did you study?
0: I did. Yeah, I uh I started working on my master's in theology um, while I was coaching football, actually. Okay. Uh, and so I, I completed that. I, I did my master's in theology at the Augustine Institute, yeah, um, based out of, uh, I guess Denver, Colorado. I was trying to think of the exact town um, in Denver, Colorado, and and loved that. Dr. Tim Gray and the the faculty he put together. It was. Um, I just tell people after marrying my wife, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. <laughs> nice. Um, it really was, uh, in, in, received incredible formation, not just in the faith, but how to articulate the faith yep. and how to put it into practice. That's part of their, of their mission statement, forming leaders for the new evangelization. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I started working on my master's in, uh, philosophy, specifically Thomistic philosophy. Um, Aquinas was kind of, uh, kind of my guy and close to my heart. And, uh, yeah, it just, it, it was affordable and, and it was doable at my last job, um, and so I'm just about done with that degree. I have to finish writing my uh, my master's thesis, which I should probably Woo-hoo. go work on this afternoon <laughs> since it's a little snowy out, and I can I can go inside and grab a coffee and uh, read it out. read through some Thomas Aquinas and uh, and work on that. But yeah, the, the, those are the two degrees I've worked on, and um, I, I'm probably one of those lifetime student type people.
1: Yeah, were you always that way?
0: Um, I was, a, or did
1: that come with your conversion
0: that came with? Well, it, it came with my conversion, but also I, I think, you know, when I started diving into the truths of the faith for the first time, I was studying something that I desired to know more about, Yeah, right? I wasn't doing like, it
1: actually had a curiosity. Yeah.
0: Well, and I wasn't doing it in a, in a pragmatic view. So I, I enjoyed, um, studying mathematics and biology because I saw the goal that I was going towards, which was mm-hmm. a job and a career, um, and a paycheck. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I sort of abandoned that path uh, and reoriented myself to learning about these things, I was learning them for the sake of learning about mm-hmm. them, um, which is what philosophy is, right? Philosophy begins, uh, as Aristotle and Aquinas would say, in, in wonder, yeah. that, that we have a, not just a sense wonder, that's the first part as human beings, that we wonder about the things around us uh, that, that we can see and touch uh, um, and hear and smell. But then we also wonder and contemplate the world around us. Yeah. Um, on, a, on a philosophical level. And so I was enjoying the things I was studying and I was studying them for the sake of their own uh, of, of their own edification in my yeah. heart.
1: Yeah. OK, so one of the things that I know about you is that you have a real love of liturgy. First of all, what is liturgy and why do you love it?
0: Yeah, so liturgy um, encompasses all of, you know, it's this big umbrella term for, you know, the way that we worship God and the way that we respond to God's love. And actually, it's it's sort of a subset of what Aristotle or excuse me, what Aquinas would call religion. So when we hear religion, right, we think of this big organizational structure. We think of yep. the church properly speaking, and that's partially right. But but re- religion you know, for Aquinas is our response to God. It's actually part of the virtue of justice. So it's what we owe God. We owe God. Religion, which sounds weird to phrase yeah, it that way. Kind of. um, but the specific way in which we give God what he is owed, the first thing he is owed is our adoration, right?
1: His worship. Our
0: adoration, our worship. And so then the church's liturgy is the way that we have codified that. The way that we as a church handed on through Jesus Christ, through the apostles, and through the magisterium of the church, uh, the way in which we can properly worship God. Um, and specifically, the way that we can corporately worship God. So this is. Um, this is the big love, right? of Of people who love the mass. The mass is the way that we worship corporately. It's what the do way you mean corporately? As so, so as as a group, right? We hear corporate. We think, you know, the root of corporation, right? Okay. All those words, yeah. that have that same root. But that that we we worship as a corporate body, and so liturgy is the way that we worship communally. Okay. Right now, you and I are both, you know, uh, family. You're a wife, I'm a husband. And so we we have probably devotional practices in our own families. We have ways that we pray as individuals. And so that would be personal prayer uh, and personal devotion. But then there's also that added element of communal worship. And so that's yeah. where the church's liturgy comes into play. Um, and when I, again, sort of had my reversion um, in college and and began studying the truths of the faith, that is really where, where my heart was drawn, was to mm-hmm. the church's understanding of liturgy and that it's the focal point of, um, of the life of faith.
1: What triggered your reversion?
0: Uh, you A know, it's, it's always, I, I'm one of those people I've, uh, I've taught people for years, how to, how to give their, their testimony, right. Yeah. How to, how to share their testimony. And, um, you sometimes hear, you know, powerful testimonies at these conferences, someone who, you know, was homeless and, and in a gutter and had sold all their possessions and, uh, was living a life of crime and drugs. And then suddenly the sky opened and yeah. the Virgin Mary appeared to them and told them <laughs> to change their life. And those make great stories. Right. And and mine doesn't make a great story because it was slow and methodical. Um, but I think it was a search for truth. Okay. Right. So it was, it was an intellectual, uh, an intellectual search for what is true. And that led me to some Catholic ideas. So for example, I, I think, Probably, if I had to name one moment, it was um, this is pretty nerdy, but I in college I read Augustine's uh, City of God. Yeah, um, and I loved Jeez. the philosophy of it. Right, I wasn't convicted Real in the Catholic brainiac. faith. Well, it, it presented a view of the world that I thought I can get behind this. Huh. Now, I wasn't committed to the teachings of the church sure. or to Scripture, but I, yeah, that's a I harder liked pill to ad- swallow. I liked this idea that Augustine presented. Um, about human history and about the human story. Yeah. That there were essentially city of God is essentially that, that there, there are two camps. There's yeah. the city of man and the city of God. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't fully committed to the city of God by any stretch, but I liked it as a philosophy. And so sure. I think some people do come to the faith through that route.
1: So I like a human anthropology, basically As a human
0: anthropology as a societal, uh, understanding of how human society orders itself. Got it. Um, And, and later on then, then through the liturgy, right. So through, through the sacraments, specifically through the mass um, and a couple experiences with confession came to love the church. And, you know, uh, if I'm being frank, I started going back to church because a girl I liked uh, went to Wednesday night, went to Wednesday night mass. She drugged me along. I went because, you know, (laughs) she was pretty and brunette and and that's my thing. If you've met my wife (laughs) and uh, you know, it, she dragged me back to the mass, and I ended up, you know, coming for the girl, but staying for christ as, huh. as as many of us do.
1: Funny how that goes, isn't it? It is interesting. ok. So then your your real love of liturgy and kind of this like desire to understand it as a communal worship came from your own experience of encountering it.
0: It did, right. And and it was encountering, you know, like many of us, good priests who could articulate it and who celebrated the liturgy reverently yeah. um, with great beauty. And, uh, you know, the eventual recognition I had, I, I couldn't articulate this at, at 23, 24 years old even, um, but that the human heart is made for worship, right? Mm-hmm. That this is not an addendum that the church has placed on top of the life of faith and, and kind of add on to say, well, here's how you understand what a human person is and who God is and who we are in relation to God. Oh, and by the way, here's a nice little tool to help you worship. Here's liturgy. But that liturgy is actually, it's actually built into who we are as a human person and that our hearts long for ritual and for yeah. worship. And so that recognition and being able to articulate that now um, what I was feeling in my heart in my early twenties coming through my reversion.
1: Yeah. Okay. So to play devil's advocate a little bit, Sure. how do you know that the human heart is made for worship? Because I think that there's a lot of people that go through life, not ever really engaging in any level of worship or even engaging with, with who God is. They might have, they might even believe in God, but he's kind of some like, uh, deity pie that's out in the sure. sky or whatever. Um, how do you how can we tell or what's the underlying um, signs that the human person is made for worship
0: I think primarily it's that you know throughout human history you see human beings creating ritual right so ritual is a sort of broader term that, that could describe both the church's rituals mm-hmm. liturgy and worship um, but also other human rituals right and so I mean again an anthropological study would would show that um, throughout from the beginning of time, humans have been creating rituals. Uh, the earlier, the earliest archaeological finds we have are of burial sites. Right? Why are humans are you know ancestral humans ritualizing um, death, ritualizing how they treat the bodies of the buried, uh, of the deceased? Excuse me. Um, and so we see this in every walk of life, in every era of history that humans ritualize their actions, they ritualize the way that they interact with each other. Um, And so if we believe that, that God is, is true, uh, then his form of ritual, then by extension is true. It's sort of a, a little bit of a logic game, right? Like if we can see from our experience that mankind is made for ritual, that, that, that man always reverts to some sort of ritual. And if we believe that God is who he says he is, then his version of ritual is by extension, the, the greatest version of ritual.
1: Mm. Would you be willing to share how an experience that you and Mara have had where you really encountered the power of ritual and the power of of liturgy?
0: Sure, you know the one that comes to mind that I think you're 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 probably hinting at is um, you know, we had a miscarriage a couple of years ago. And this is while we're living in St. Louis and I'm I'm working for the church. Uh, I'm at the time running the young adult ministry office. I'm directing that office for uh, for Archbishop Carlson, who's a, who's a great mentor, and people in South Dakota will will still know that name and and tell stories. When I tell them I'm from St. Louis, they'll still have uh, Bob Bob Carlson stories, yeah. as they say, yeah. uh, Archbishop to me. Um, but I was working for the church. I again, I had a degree in theology. I had all this formal training. I'm you know reading books on the liturgy before I go to bed at night. Like I'm, I, I am in the 90th, 90th percentile of of people who have knowledge of the liturgy. And my wife and I experience a miscarriage. And I remember very clearly, uh, you know, obviously you remember the moment when your wife experiences the miscarriage. Um, Anybody who's gone through that, that's a very visceral reaction. And we, it was our first child. And I remember feeling like that's the moment I became a father in a a sort of weird way. Mm -hmm. Um, Having to help my wife navigate just the gruesomeness of delivering that uh, deceased child. And I remember that moment. And then I very distinctly remember the moment after that. Having this sort of panic because I didn't know what to do next, and I remember thinking, you know, here I am, this you know, trained—I don't want to say theologian, um, but but someone with a, a, a degree in theology of knowledge of the church's liturgy—and if I don't know how to navigate this, what does your average Catholic or even your your average person go through? And so I did what uh, what we all should do in that moment. I I called the priest. I called the priest who I trusted and. Um, Father Nicholas Smith, who's now a dear friend um, and and a great spiritual mentor to me and my wife, uh, helped us walk through that process. And it was a beautiful process. Um, and it was a beautiful discovery of um of why the church's worship, why the church's liturgy is so important, especially in those moments of great joy and of great sorrow.
1: Hmm. Okay, so connect the dots for me there. In terms of how what what was Father Nicholas? You said mm-hmm. what was Father Nicholas really walking you through? That really, uh, from what I'm kind of gathering, led to this healing process. Of course, it wasn't easy or or suddenly all as well in the world or anything like that. And I'm sure there's still a level of grief there at times and and whatever. But um, what was he really walking you through? Like a funeral, a burial? Uh, what's the rich? What's the ritual that you're referring to?
0: Yeah, so what? Um, at least in the archdiocese of St. Louis, I mean, there's there, there's a couple of different ways that you can approach it. But what uh, what Father Smith and the Office of Worship um, in St. Louis had done was they had actually put together um, from the rites of the church, so R I T E S, the the liturgical rites of the church. So from the Roman Missal and from the Book of Blessings, they had had compiled a couple different pieces um, and created essentially kind of uh, um, from this grab bag of these liturgical rites um, a ceremony for naming, for commendation, and for burial of a stillborn child or, you know, a miscarried child. Mm -hmm. Um, Because what, what we found out very quickly and kind of what I hinted at a minute ago, you know, I think most people that go through that don't even know what that next step is, Mm -hmm. right? Is there, you know, does, does the church have a means of, of burying this child? Uh, Do we name this child? And Who's going to help me navigate this? And so we had a priest with us to help us navigate that process. And so we had um, a mass. We named our child uh, Joseph Carroll. We um, had a, a you know the the, the right, rite r i t e of of commendation of commending that child to God. Uh, and then we went to the cemetery and we did a burial, and so we did all of these things that uh, are part of the life of the church, part of the church's liturgical understanding part of the church's liturgical life. Um, And what really concretized what that really concretized for us was that um, again, that the human heart is made for these rituals. Um, So, you know, we're made for these rituals on, you know, going to mass every Sunday, we're made for them um, in a habitual way, but then that habitual way really opens up in those moments, like I said, of great sorrow and great joy. So Mm -hmm. think about, you know, the baptism of a child or the birth of a child, Um, your wedding day. Right. Right. The big obvious kind of highlight moments, but then also burying a loved one and in this very unique, you know, kind of specific way, burying a miscarried child, burying a child who never had the chance um, to live outside of the womb and, and, and and how to navigate that. And so for us, like you said, Emily, it's uh, you know, the church is not promising with these rituals and rites that she's going to take away your pain. Right. But she's going to give (laughs) you a language for them. She's going to give you a context to navigate them. Um, And that's what I think liturgy does, right? It gives us a language. It gives us a lens through which to navigate our experience of the world. Yeah. Um, Like I said, both in the mundane every day, week to week going to mass, uh, but also in moments of great sorrow and of great joy.
1: Right. I appreciate it a few minutes ago, you used the word, it concretized. And I I can't help but think like, that's what liturgy, that's what ritual does. That actually, because we're so made for, we need to smell things, taste things. We wanna to touch things. That's why our food looks beautiful when we go to a restaurant. Like it matters what it looks like. It matter beauty matters. All of these things. Um we we typically smell a candle before we buy it. We don't just wanna light a candle be for the sake of light. Like there's there's all of these the scents and, and all of these things that go along with it. And yeah, I, I just hadn't thought about it in that way, but it but it allows Us to make concrete the questions and the realities that we're experiencing in the human experience.
0: Absolutely. Well, and and this is the great uh, this is the great Christian story, right? That that God became man. That God took on flesh. And so, you know, the incarnation is not just it. It it of course finds its its pinnacle um, and its you know its source and summit in Jesus becoming man but that changes all of human existence, right? So um, there's a reason why, like you said, uh, in the liturgy of the church, we use concrete physical things. We use bread and we use wine and we use water and oil and smoke and incense and, and
1: ashes we just
0: started Lent right so ashes and you know we're having debates about do we sprinkle them do we put them on the forehead <laughs> uh, you know like yeah these, these are real questions and people get passionate about these questions because because we're made um, for it. because we're made for it and because our bodies are not just a vehicle that we use to navigate the world for 75 or 80 years and then we drop our bodies and we go to heaven right we know that at the end of time, Christ's resurrection actually prefigured our resurrection. Our bodies will be resurrected. I, uh, I, I teach well, religious ed yeah. out at Hartford, um, and one of my catechists was was sick, and so I got the the great experience of getting to teach the seventh grade girls last week. <laughs> and they are quite a crew. And uh, we got way off topic, and we got talking about this. We're going through the creed right now. Uh, and we got to that very end part of the creed, right? I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And this isn't to throw them under the bus, but they had never really thought about that concept. No one had ever taught them that concept before. And I remember the shock and awe of our bodies actually are going to come back. Yeah. This is, this is a drastic revelation that the church teaches that our bodies are not just vehicles, that they are an intrinsic part of who we are. Um, And so all these things matter, right? Again, you miscarry a child Uh, that what very much is in that moment, a ball of flesh and tissue yes. and products of miscarriage sure. um, has infinite value to it. And a soul. Right. It yeah. has, a, yeah, it was in sold uh, at, at the moment of conception. And even those, th- those parts of that body, um, those constituent parts have incredibly infinite value to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it, uh, it, to concretize, I use that word a lot, right. To, to concretize something is a very human thing because yeah. Um, it's a very Jesus thing in a layman's (laughs) way of saying it. (laughs) That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did.
1: Yeah. You know, two weeks ago I uh, had a pelvic floor physical therapist on and Mara's going to love it. I don't know if she's listened to it. I'm halfway through
0: that episode. Are you? It's good. I'm halfway through. Yeah. Yeah,
1: It's good. Um, And in some ways I was like, this is probably going to come off as, as really random um, to, to listeners. And yet I, I can't help, but just, like draw or call that episode to mind as we're talking about this, because the body matters, the body matters because it, it, it it makes visible the soul. It makes visible um, the indwelling of the Holy spirit in the human person. And that's a powerful thing. And so there's a sacredness and there's a way in which, you know, uh, why is it that so many people, want to like give up sweets and start exercising during Lent or the new year or whatever. Like, yeah, it's because we want to lose weight and be stronger and whatever. But I think if we're to really dig into that a little bit more at the heart of it is because our bodies actually matter. And we recognize on some level that it's important what we do with them in the same way that it's important. Maybe that's why we it's important that we stand or that we kneel or- I was just
0: going to say that, yep.
1: Right. Or like if, if somebody does something really incredible, our, 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 way to honor them is that we stand up and we clap that that's not just a, a random coincidence, no. right?
0: Well, no. And, and we were talking about this earlier, right? That, you know, part of the, uh, the, the proof, if you will, uh, for the human heart being made for liturgy is that we see ritual in all, you know, in all ages and all places and time. So, I mean, think about, you know, rituals that are, that are non-religious, Right. Uh, clapping when somebody does something good, right? That's something yep. that you learn, right? Rituals are are passed on yeah. um, through time and through generations, right? We we sort of instinctively do it now. Um, you know, you think about something like a graduation ceremony, right? It, it it's it's similar in a way, yeah. right? There's a there's a procession,
1: yeah. We right, move a task.
0: And there's yeah, there's an investiture, huh. right? There's yeah. all these things that. Um, are very common language for us in the church because they're very human language. Yeah. Um, even like something as ridiculous and, and you know, seemingly unrelated as um, like knowing how to navigate a fancy dinner. Yeah. Right. Like knowing which yeah. fork to use first. These yeah. are, these are rituals. Those and are
1: human rituals. They
0: give us, uh, huh. they give us comfort because they help us to navigate that specific scenario. Right. Wow. So. Um, I remember like pushing back, like a lot of us would push back on, on that. They used to teach us that in focus, like how to, uh, how to know how to navigate, um, I'm thinking on the word now, but, um, uh, how to navigate, um, all of those etiquette pieces, etiquette, etiquette, that's what I was trying to pull up. Yeah. Um, and, uh, in fact, one of my mentors related it to sports, right? That, that etiquette is knowing the rules of the game that you're playing actually gives you freedom. To play enter, the game. To play the game well, right? So if I go to dinner with, you know, uh, a big donor, this was the reality in focus, right? You're raising money or maybe you're meeting sure. your bishop for the first time. Sure. Um, or, your to, or, or, your, or your in-laws. Or your in-laws. There you go. Yeah. And you have to navigate this knowing <laughs> and having the comfort to know instinctively which fork to use for your salad and which one to use for your entree and knowing which water glass and which bread roll tray yeah. is yours. Like yeah. knowing that it's on the right side and that yeah. your fork points to or your knife yeah. points to it. Uh Gives you the freedom to then be social and not be overly concerned with the forks and the plates yeah. and the cups. It's the same way in sports, or right? To
1: awkwardly say, wow, there's a lot of forks for a little. Exactly. And that's yeah.
0: the coach in me says, right? Like if you yeah. find the greatest athlete in the world and try to make him a football player, but you've never taught him the rules, the rule's of football,
1: uh,
0: he's probably going to run the wrong direction. He's probably going to run out of bounds. Yep. Um. He's not going to be a very effective player. Right. Yep. Um, and I'm I may be stretching I'm definitely stretching my metaphors here a little bit, right? But this is what the liturgical life of the church does in a way too, right? It gives us um it gives us some boundaries for worshiping God, at least in a communal fashion. Yeah. Right. So there are things that we're told do this, And there are things we're told, don't do this when it comes to liturgy.
1: Like don't chew um, gum during... Don't
0: chew gum during mass. Yeah. Uh, even, you know, this This gets controversial. This sort of music is proper for worship and this sort of music maybe isn't. Yeah. Um, and maybe some of that music that's not proper for liturgical worship is great music to jam out in your home and have devotional practice to God. Right. Sure, sure. Um And so, th- you know, the church in her wisdom gives us the liturgy but she also gives us these private devotional practices. Yeah. And So there is a lot of a lot of space for how we worship God and how we ritualize it. And again, um, us with both, you know, young families and young kids, this is part of parenting.
1: Yeah. Right? It's figuring yeah.
0: out okay, the church gives us these beautiful um these beautiful rituals when it comes to corporate, communal, yeah. liturgical worship. But I got to figure out how to do this within my own family. Yeah. Um, and not just the worship part, but I mean, my daughter, Cecilia, and I, are. I'm trying to figure out our rituals in the morning. When do we brush teeth? Yep. And do we do cereal first? And then dad showers. And then we, I mean, yeah. these are rituals, right? These are things that help us order our life, yeah. that give order to the chaos. And that's, yeah. um, I'm way off topic here. But I mean, yeah. this is, again, this is what the incarnation does, right? The yeah. word became flesh, the logos. Yeah. We, we we hear of Jesus as logos, as or, the ordering principle of all reality. Yeah. And so when this ordering principle in the beginning of of scripture comes into right the uh the the world was was formless and void right mm-hmm. there's no form and, and there's void and so we see these these two realities and the logos the word of god the ordering principle comes into creation and orders it and then when christ takes on flesh the same thing happens to our created fleshy incarnate reality right mm-hmm. jesus takes on flesh he orders it and this is what the church is hope, hopefully doing for us
1: yeah Okay. So I have three more questions yes. and not a lot of time. Perfect. Are you ready?
0: I rambled. So this is, yeah. Okay. Keep me on the clock.
1: Question number one, earlier you used the phrase proper worship. What would you say to somebody who's like, why can't I just worship however I want? I, this is how I like to pray or this is, cause I think that's an, that's an obstacle for people is we kind of feel a little bit at times like, well, yeah. What, who's the church or who's the pastor or whatever denomination, you know, somebody might find themselves in that is going to tell me how to worship God, because this is the personal relationship. What would you say?
0: Yeah, I would say that there is a need for some Marian receptivity there, right? So worship, especially the liturgy, is something that we don't create, we receive, <laughs> right? We, yeah. we we receive It's from God, from the, from the blessed Trinity. And that's a very Marian stance to take, right? Mm -hmm. The church is Marian at her heart. Yeah. Um, We are being most why it's uh, referred
1: to as a her. It's why there's a receptivity. Why
0: we refer to the church in the feminine, right? Because um, if we're living well as a church, again, both individually, but also corporately, um, then we're going to have that Marian receptivity. And I guess the second thing would be that, um, and, and this is part of my past working in the church and Again, this maybe is a whole other podcast for someone else, but um, the idea of finding your personal apostolate and Hmm. and navigating apostolate in the church, that there is a lot of room for movements and for apostolates and for different charisms Charisms. in the church. Yeah. And those don't all need to be jam-packed into one hour on Sunday. Hmm. And this is sort of one of my soapboxes, right, that um, because the Sunday Mass, that one hour on Sunday is where we have access to people that we need to jam everything into that. So we need to have 50,000 announcements and we need people to play every style of music under the sun. Um, and we need as many people to be involved and have, I'm using air quotes, jobs in the yeah. in the liturgy as we can. We need 50,000 Eucharistic ministers and, and none of that is really proper to the liturgy. Hmm. Now, those people with those charisms, there is a place for that in the church. And yeah, we as a church need, it. need to do better at helping them understand where that is.
1: Amen. Okay, that's going to—yeah, you're going to come back on, and we're going to do— I have lots of thoughts on personal apostolate. Finding your personal apostolate. That's going to be—I'm going to write it down so that I don't forget. Okay, um, second question. Lent. As we enter into Lent, how can uh, we engage? What are some practical things maybe that we can do over this next 40 days to enter into some of these rituals that the church provides that can allow us to better understand— what Lent is about, what it's actually for. You know what I'm saying? Sure. What are some things that we can do?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the most basic, again, it, it's we we talked a lot today about liturgy and the wisdom of the church being an an ordering principle, right? It orients us towards something. Um and I think Lent is is a really, really stark example of that. That Lent is meant to orient us towards Christ in a in a very specific way, and too often we see Lent as just what we're giving up, right? It's just that I'm I'm not doing this and I'm not doing this, um, and maybe I'm adding some prayer on the top, but really I'm I'm giving up some some money in alms giving and I'm giving up stuff in in you know fasting or ascetical practices. And uh, you know the men's group that we keep referring to with your husband and with a bunch of other great men, you know, we're doing some ascetical practices and giving up some different things for Lent, but we've really tried to be cognizant of. Those things not being for their own sake. Yeah. Those things being at the service. Like we're not just giving
1: up beer. We're to not give giving up beer. beer to
0: give up beer because we're all you know have a few more pounds than we'd like to around our, our <laughs> midsection, and we do. Um, you know, I don't get to the gym as often as Matt because Matt built a gym in the house. That's a whole other podcast. I yeah, I love that Matt spent the time and and the passion he has. Also, for, like he's
1: been going rock climbing every week. He needs a buddy. You We're need gonna, to go along he, with it. He asked
0: me. We're going to go next week because oh, I great. go to that gym. Oh great! I'm not a gym climbing membership member, but I I go to the. The basic boring guy, gym. So got it. Anyway. Yeah. We're going to go. Yeah. I climbing. tried to put
1: on the harness and I was like, this is not going to work. Seven months pregnant. I was just
0: going to say, maybe wait a couple months, we'll wait a couple months postpartum and then yeah. maybe figure it out. Yeah.
1: But really, yeah, he just He just needs some guys to go along with him now. to but, play. But
0: right. We do these things. We, you know, we gave up alcohol and we gave up snacking and, and those are a couple examples, but um prayer has been the ordering principle of it and, and ordering it back towards our spiritual life. And we do this a lot again in our men's group, but you know, giving up certain things so that we can replace them with something else. So it's not just that I'm giving up Netflix in the evening. Yeah. It's I'm giving up Netflix because I want to be attentive to my wife and my child. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what am I ordering myself What's back towards? For? So, yeah. so Lent is a great time to, uh, to put some blinders on in, in a good way yeah. to put some blinders on from some of the distractions of the world and order our vision um, and our life towards the cross because yeah. that's where that's where we're headed, right? Yeah. We're headed towards Good Friday. Yeah. Um, so to orient ourselves towards the cross in a very real way.
1: Yeah. Father Scott came on the the podcast last week, and that's one of the things on, in the episode How to Lent. And uh, I just loved that he rooted the entire conversation in receptivity to God's love because it has to start there. Otherwise, Lent doesn't make sense. Correct. Kind yeah. of thing. Like, there's we have to be reminded. Like, this is because. We want to let go of all of those burdens that we're uneven that we might not even be aware of, in order to better receive the incredible, and and um, infinite love that God has for us. It just was, yeah, really beautiful. And and
0: And that it's all based in relationship, right? This is this is Father Scott's favorite thing. uh, Father Trainer's favorite thing to teach. It's a very IPF thing: relationship, identity, mission. Right. And that if we get those backwards. Yeah. Um, we're we're gonna be really out of sorts. So so often in the church we start with the mission, mission right? We say, yeah. What am I going to do? Lent is a great uh time to fall prey to that, right? Yeah. What are the things I'm going to do even with good to intentions? Check off my for the, list or, or or even even with really good intentions for the sake of the kingdom, for growth and virtue, for growth and holiness, I'm gonna do XYZ A B C and we have this yeah. list and it's all about the mission. And that mission has to, as we said, flow from our identity as as Christians, yeah. as people who have been saved by Jesus Christ, and that identity has to flow from relationship with Christ. Right. So ordering it right. correctly is, uh, yeah, as right. Father Scott would would certainly teach and as the church would teach, um, very important.
1: Yeah. Shane, this has been such a fascinating conversation, and I feel like it's going to change the way uh, that I go to Mass. It's going to change the way uh, that I make the sign of the cross when I walk in front of the cathedral, most days, like there's just some of those rituals. I'm just thinking about them um, differently after this conversation. So I'm so grateful. I have one more question for you. This is a place with more questions than answers. And I ask every guest that comes on Lead of to Life, what's a question that you've been pondering?
0: <laughs> so first of all, uh, we I work for the for the diocese. I work for for St. George and Hartford. We did a little uh, we do a little Zoom call every week with some of the parish catechetical leaders. Yeah, and uh, I think it was two weeks ago. Dr. Bergwald, good, good, good friend of the show, good, good friend, friend of mine, good friend, good friend, good friend of, friend of, of yours. Yeah, uh, was, we officially
1: have friends of the show. I feel I like I've made it.
0: <laughs> you, you really have. But um, Dr. Bergwald, friend of the show, was was leading a discussion, and in the midst of the discussion, I think without realizing it, he said, "You know, this is just one of those places where." you know, we have more questions than we have answers. And I was dying. I was cracking up. Yeah. I'm like, he's been spending too much time with his leading to life. Uh, he's he's stealing Emily's catchphrase. I'm so, wearing
1: off on people.
0: So I knew this one was coming. Um, and I, I, uh, I'm i going to try to articulate it. I know we're, we're short on time. Um, a lot of the work I've done in the church, or at least research I've done in the church, uh, especially at my, at my former job, was... About these trends, the, right? The trends of people leaving the church, some of the some of the social, the societal data um, on why young people, which used to be millennials, but now we're old people. Emily, we're getting old. We're
1: had, um, I know we're having
0: kids, and
1: the Xers are coming at women for parting their hair to the side. Did you hear I, about all I, this? I
0: saw that. I didn't know even know that was a thing, but <sighs> it's causing quite a stir. But 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 many of Generation Z are actually coming to what we would consider maturity now, and so. These societal trends, right, of, of why people leave the church. And, and one of the big findings that all of these, you know, Pew or, or Barna or whatever research institute you want to read, one of the big trends that they see across the board is that young people, broadly speaking, millennials, Gen Z, um, have, they don't just distrust the church, they distrust institutions. Yeah. Right. They distrust their banks, and I mean, can for you blame Richard, them? I
1: know. Can I you blame them say. for distrusting
0: things like Congress and <laughs> yeah. the and and the presidency? Um, they distrust all institutions, yeah. right? The, the 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 rate of institutional trust is is down um, in huge numbers. And then in, on this, on the other hand, what we just spoke about um, that the beauty of liturgy, and not just the beauty of it as an addendum on our life, but that it's actually integral to who we are. That we need to encounter our Lord through these rituals, through liturgy, through worship. And so if both of these things are true, right, that uh, we need the church's liturgy as expressed through her hierarchy and through this institution of the church, and at the same time we have young people who don't trust institutions, my question is, in these next decades, uh, how do we bring those two realities together? Because I think what one one could make an argument that in the past couple of decades what we've tried is to is to bring the liturgy to their level, right? To dumb down the liturgy, uh, to um, to profane the liturgy, um, meaning to, to to remove it from its sacred space, right? Uh, take the priest out of the collar, put him on the same level as the people. Make our churches—this could be a whole different rant—but make our churches look like a community worship space. Yeah, let's and, get
1: your soapbox back not, out for and you and not like sacred yeah.
0: space and we know that those results haven't been good.
1: Yeah, they haven't worked.
0: And so what is the answer? And I don't have the answer. That's I I think the uh the
1: question the, to ponder the point
0: of this question but the question to ponder is uh if the people were trying to reach and trying to show the beauty of the liturgy, don't trust the institutions or the specifically catholic institution that that liturgy comes from, where do we go? Yeah. And I think that's that's one of the big questions because the church doesn't exist outside of the liturgy. Have uh, you finished We can't from, separate ourselves from that.
1: Oh, totally. Have you finished from Christendom to Apostolic Mission yet?
0: I have. Yeah. I I've I read it uh yeah, I have read it a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, it's so
1: good. But but I think that's like it that's one of the key questions yep. in that text is it's not proposing an answer necessarily. It's but it's recognizing the reality of how do we engage the world in an apostolic age, when people distrust or when people don't have uh, readily available to them the natural sense of, I actually am oriented or I need God um, in that way. So Shane, this was awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. I can't wait to have you um, come back on to discuss the personal possible
0: Personal apostolate. It's gonna be so good. It's a, it's a great topic.
1: Yeah. Well, friends, I pray that your Lent is off to a beautiful start and that this episode will uh, bear a lot of fruit in how you continue to approach it, how you continue to enter into the power of the season uh, and that it uh, continues to bear a lot of fruit. We'll see you next time.